I got two speeding tickets in South Carolina. Those were not the only two times I was pulled over. But I got two speeding tickets in South Carolina, and uh, I'm not necessarily biased against law enforcement in South Carolina, but there's something going on with them. Do not speed through South Carolina. And it's not just that they'll pull you over, y'all. Like, there were times I got pulled over where we really weren't doing anything. They just kind of wanted to let us know they were there. That the, uh, Robbie, don't do this when you get your badge now. Don't let it change you. That they have to have something to say when they come up to your window, you roll the window down. I don't know if they teach them these lines, like in their training, or if they just come up with them on the spot, but they have some good lines, they walk up to your window and, and say something to you. And it's never just license and registration. They always got this little one-liner. So I had, uh, we lived in South Carolina. I was in school there from 97 to 2001. And then back in uh, probably 2012, 2013, Southern Wesleyan, which is where we graduated from, called me up and asked me to come down there and teach a one-day class. So I said, I'll do that. Drive down in the morning, drive back that afternoon. So I drive all the way there. It's about a four-hour drive from our house. Five minutes from the campus. And when you drive, especially, y'all, if you drive through Liberty, South Carolina, make sure you check your speed, regardless of your motive. So I'm driving through Liberty, and I'm, I forget about this whole deal. There's all kind of speed traps everywhere, and everybody is like a police officer waiting behind every bush. And I look in my rearview mirror, and I see blue lights. And I'm already running a little bit late. So I go, oh, man. And I, and I coached myself as I pulled over. Look, Josh, he's going to say something. Just don't have anything to say in response. So I roll my window down, and let me tell you something. The slower they walk up to your car, the worse the line's going to be because I think they're thinking of it as they come. <laughs> so he pulls up behind me. He's got his shades on. My window's down, and he's walking up real slow. And he just stands up my window for a second. And he looks at me, and he goes, you was getting it pretty good coming down that hill, won't you? <laughs> and to be honest with you, I didn't know how to answer that question because I felt like any answer I would have given would have implicated myself further. If I would have said, no, sir, no, I wasn't getting it pretty good coming down that hill, then now the man is already kind of teetering on the edge, and I feel like calling him a liar would have pushed him over the edge. But at the same time, I can't say yes. Yes, sir. Upon further reflection, it appears to me that I was getting it pretty good coming down that hill. (laughs) Now I have admitted guilt and made myself even more likely to receive a ticket. So instead, I just sat there in silence and waited for the man to write my ticket and bring it back to me. Perfect example of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Now, anytime I go into, I'm fairly speed conscious anyway sometimes i drive too slow but i'm especially speed conscious when i drive into south carolina because of experiences that i that i've had but most of the time my motivation for checking my speed and for making sure i'm driving according to the speed limit is not the preservation of life to be honest with you it's to keep from getting a ticket so sometimes we can do the right thing for the wrong reason John chapter 6. That was probably an unnecessary story, but I wanted to tell it, so there it is. John chapter 6, okay. 
I'm going to read verses 25 through 27, but let me tell you what happens leading up to that point. John chapter 6 is a pretty famous passage because it contains the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels outside of the resurrection, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. And we all know that story. Jesus is teaching this group of people. It says there are 5,000. Some people say, really, the 5,000 was only speaking of the males because that was a patriarchal society, so it didn't even tell how many females and children were there also. So there could have been upwards of 15,000 people there, but 5,000 are named. And Jesus feeds these 5,000 by way of miracle. They had been there all day. They had been uh, on the receiving end of his teaching. And then also Jesus was laying hands upon them. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. They became hungry at the end of the day. They had no time to make it back to the town before dark. So Jesus takes a small boy's lunch and he feeds this multitude of 5,000 by way of miracle. After this happens, it says that Jesus retreated by himself to a mountaintop to pray to the Father. And it says the disciples got into a boat. Now, they got into a boat by themselves apart from Jesus, and they sailed to the other side of the lake. Jesus crosses over the lake also, but he got there a different way than they did. He used his feet. They used a boat. He used his feet. And so it says his disciples look out and they see him walking, walking on the water. But at the end of the night, both Jesus and his disciples have crossed over to the other side of the lake. Everybody with me so far? And it says that these individuals, this multitude that was on the receiving end of this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, searched desperately for Jesus throughout the night and they could not find him. They knew that his disciples had left in the boat, but he was not with them and they couldn't figure out where he was. And it says that they finally found him the next morning on the shore on the other side of the lake. Of course, they couldn't figure out how they got there because there was only one boat and they knew that he wasn't in the boat, but there he was. So this multitude that had just, again, been the beneficiary of this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, searched desperately for Jesus. We could say that they followed Jesus and they finally found him which would be a good thing the next morning on the other side of the lake, but then they get this rebuke. In John 6, beginning in verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Probably they were also asking him, How did you get here? Jesus answered unto them, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw a miracle, but because you had your fill of the loaves. Work not for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give unto you. For it is upon him that God the Father has set his seal. So let me ask you this question. Why did the people that Jesus had just fed search for him desperately until they found him? According to Jesus, it was because it was morning time and they were hungry again. Now they knew how to get food. This man can feed us. We don't even have to work for it. This man can feed us. So it was their physical hunger. It was their desire to be physically satisfied, to have their five senses appeased. This is what compelled them to search for Jesus until they found him. 
Here's a fact. On this day, Jesus had 5,000 followers. I know we talked about the the women and children, but we're given the number 5,000. So we'll say that on this day, he had 5,000 followers. 5,000 people were there to hear his teaching, and these 5,000 people searched for him through the night until they found him. Yet after his arrest and crucifixion, we are told that he had only 120 followers. Now, I'm not real good at math, y'all. I'm just going to keep it real with you. It took me two years to pass Algebra 1. And I still don't know how I did it. But I'm going to give you all a word problem. If we start out with 5,000 people, and by the way, this, uh, this happening here, this instance in John chapter 6, is not that far removed from the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. It's not that long until that happens. So we start off with 5,000 followers, and then we end up with 120. So how many are we missing? 4,880, is that right? Okay. So the question then is this. We look at the 120 people who were steadfast with Jesus when he needed them the most and when they needed him the most. There were only 120. So the question is, what happened to the other 4,880? And that's even assuming that some of this 5,000 was mixed in with that 120. There might not have been any of them. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that at the end there were 120. Still, what happened to the 4,880? Apparently, the 4,880 were following Jesus, but they were following Jesus for the wrong reason. Following Jesus is a good thing. We tell people to do that. We tell people to do what these 5,000 people did. Search for him until you find him. Seek after him. Sit at his feet. But their motive was not pure. Let me just say this because I'm afraid I'll forget to say it later, because I'm going to ask you in a few minutes to kind of check your motive, and to be honest with you, most of us in here, we're going to look at ourselves, and we're going to say, man, I'm following Jesus, I'm doing the right thing, but my motive is not pure. Let me say this, just to kind of remove any condemnation and guilt. Keep following him, because the very act of following Jesus will have a purifying effect on your motives. Stay behind him, regardless of your motive. Because the thing about Jesus is this, He only goes to one place. He goes to the heart of the Father. That's the only place he ever goes. It's his one and only destination. So if you follow behind him, if you stay behind him long enough, you will end up in the Father's heart. So if you find that your motives are impure, don't don't allow that to be a reason for you to quit following him. Stay behind him. Stay behind him, and it will purify your motives. But the lesson is this, y'all, because there is a warning here. When we look within ourselves and when we ask ourselves, why are we doing this? I'm assuming that all of us in here, I don't know all of y'all, but I'm assuming that all of us in here would claim to be a follower of Jesus. But what is our motive? Following Jesus is good, but if you follow him for the wrong reason, you won't be around for long. 
if your motives stay impure. Now, they can go through a purification process, but if your motives stay impure, if you have no interest in your motives being pure, you will not be around for long. Your belly might get full, but your spirit will starve. Such was the case with this multitude in John 6. Are y'all with me? Okay. I can't see you, so I just got to take your word for it. So let me ask you this question as we kind of look within ourselves and we search ourselves. We allow the Spirit really to search us out, to reveal our motives, and He will do that if we allow Him the space to do so. Let me ask you this question. Do you follow Jesus because of what He does for you, or do you follow Him because of who He is? Um, my wife and I, for about nine years, led a ministry called The Bridge Project. And during that time, we had a little storefront space in downtown Asheboro, and we would, um, we would host a Narcotics Anonymous group there, and they met there three days a week. And even though I don't have any history of drug addiction, um, I could identify with a lot of the pain that, they, that was underneath their addiction, and they would allow me to sit in on their meetings. And um, one of the sayings that was kind of popular that would come up a lot, and this really does go to our motive, especially, okay, what is our motive for coming here? They would say this. They would, they would always sort of, um, they would always compare and contrast church with recovery. And they would say people go to church and people go to recovery for different reasons. And one of the things that they would say, and don't be offended by it because there's some truth to it, people go to church because they're afraid of going to hell. People go to recovery because they've already been there. The thing about it was, right or wrong, the individuals in that room had as many issues as we do, but the one thing that I can say about them is their motive was pure. Every one of them came to recovery because they knew if they didn't, they would use again. And they knew if they used again that they would die or they would be incarcerated or they would be hospitalized. And that motive is pure. They understood that they needed it. They weren't putting on a show. They weren't just trying to get tangible benefits. They knew spiritually that this was the only thing that was going to hold them together, and so they came. I wish our motives were as pure when we come to church or when we do whatever we do when we're following Jesus. So do we follow him because of who he is, or do we follow him because of what he does for us? Well, who is he? Let me tell you all something, man. I I told Justin this on on Friday. This, This message that I'm preaching to you is like probably incomplete because this is the result of some work that God is doing in me. And it's an ongoing work that he's doing in me. Who is he? Well, John 1 tells us that he is the one who reveals the heart of God. Man, if somebody asks you who Jesus is, you should have an answer. And it shouldn't just be an answer somebody else gave you. He's the one who reveals the heart of God. John 15 says that he is the true vine and that if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. Colossians 1, this is my favorite, says that he is the image of the invisible God. God is transcendent. God is mysterious. God can be searched out. God can never be understood. He can be related to. He can be experienced. He can never be comprehended. But we see what God is like by looking at Jesus. We see his heart by looking at Jesus. Hebrews 4 says that Jesus is the true Sabbath. 
for God's people and that in him we find the spiritual and physical rest that we need. When it comes to motives, we can keep it pretty simple. There are really only two motivations, y'all, for all human behavior, as far as I can tell. Fear and love. That's pretty much it. Everything that we do, we do for two reasons. We either do it out of fear or we do it out of love. And we can name a whole bunch of other different motivations, but all of those things are rooted in one of those two realities. At the bottom of it is either fear or love. So when we say, do we, do we follow him because of what he does for us, then we're motivated by fear. We're afraid that we're going to miss out. We're afraid that we're going to lose out. We want to have what everybody else has. Or we're motivated by love. Man, we've caught a glimpse of God. We've had an encounter with Jesus, and we've caught a glimpse of God. We've experienced him, and because we're made to experience him, we want to keep coming back. That's a pure motive. I think, y'all, that that really is the only pure motive when it comes to following Jesus, is do you really want union with the Father? your creator, the source of all life, do you want union with him? If you want union with him, follow Jesus. Because Jesus will take you directly into his heart. Again, if you find that that's not your motive, just keep staying behind him. And if you stay behind him long enough, the road might get dark, but that will become your motive eventually. Because the act of following behind him is so sacrificial that it will burn everything else off. And you just want to be united with the Father. A great example of a pure motive is Job. I recommend reading the book of Job, but I don't recommend reading it all at once. Unless you just have like, you're just really stable and really sound of mind. But for me, i got to break it up into bits and pieces. But we all know the story of Job, that he loses everything. He loses all of his wealth, and not only his wealth, but he loses his children. He doesn't lose his wife, but he probably wished he did because his wife turned on him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? God has taken all of our children. He's taken all of our wealth. He's taken everything. He even took Job's health away or allowed Satan to do so, so that Job's physical health also was wrecked. He lost everything but his own life. Job, though, says this after everything is taken away from him and his friends are coming to him and saying, you must have done something wrong. His wife is saying to him, renounce God and die. Job says this, in the midst of all of his uncertainty, he says, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Regardless of what he does, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Job to me um, represents something that I like to call sanctified agnosticism. To be an agnostic means that you don't know. And some people um, look down upon those who would claim to be agnostics. But you know what? I don't know is not a bad thing to say. I don't know is creative. I don't know has possibilities. I don't care is a dead end road. But I don't know, God can work with. See, when things are going really well for us, y'all, y'all tell me if I'm talking too long, okay? When things are going really well for us, man, we got all kinds of beliefs about God. I all believe this and this. <laughs> Guess what? Let suffering come along, and it'll burn all that mess off. And then what do you got left? There's a song by Steve Earle that was actually playing on our way here that says, 
every day that I live, I know a little bit less. It'll burn all that stuff off. So, so this is what happened for Job. It seemed like everything was good for Job at the beginning, and Job had all this stuff. He was righteous. He had all these beliefs about God. His sacrificial, everything was right. His theology was straight, you know? And then all this stuff happened, and everything fell away. And what was Job left with? This is what makes Job so beautiful. Job was left with the only thing that any of us can ever really know, and that is this. God is good, and God will have the final word. Most days, I don't know anything more than those two. And some days, I can't even explain them. God is good, but I don't really know what that means. I just know that I've experienced him, and I know that he loves me, and I know that his desire is life. Okay? But sometimes, I really don't have any idea what he's up to. But I just know he's good, and I also know that because he's God, he's the source, he's the creator, that he's going to have the final word. He's good. He's going to have the final word. Job placed his trust in that, even though he was going through so much stuff in the here and now, and he followed behind him. His motivation was pure for following God. Because really, for Job, in that moment right there, there were no tangible benefits. After a while, there were, but in that moment, there were not. Jesus kind of reflects this same thing um, the night that he was betrayed when he's in Gethsemane, and he's telling God, look, I don't want to do this, and I shouldn't have to do this. But he says, but not my will, but your will be done. That, is, that, is, that prayer right there is the prayer of a sanctified agnostic. I don't know what's going on, and I don't like it. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what's going to happen on the other side. Don't y'all love when y'all talk to people who got it all figured out? They know what's going to happen when they die. They know where they're going when they die. They know where you're going when you die. How do you know all that stuff? They know exactly what God's up to and why he did all this stuff and it all pieces together. Guess what? I've looked at it. It doesn't all piece together. But this much I know, God is good and God will have the final word. Those are the only two things that I'll stand on, y'all. And I look at Jesus and I see the pure example of somebody who reflected that and somebody who stood on those two truths and who followed God with a completely 100% pure motive. All right, I'm wrapping up. Okay, so as we look at our motives, we look at why we follow him. Uh, l- let me say this, too. Don't... See, I'm one of those people that I carry around a lot of guilt, so I try to get guilt off everybody else. Don't feel guilty. If there are tangible benefits to following Jesus, Jesus even says that. There, there are tangible benefits to following him, man. Following him in the long run, though it may lead through suffering at times, is, is actually good, not just for us like psychologically, spiritually, but is good for us physically. Benefits to our spiritual health, benefits to our physical health. We gain friends. We gain community. We experience love. All these things are good. The, these are tangible benefits of following Jesus. Don't feel bad for receiving those benefits. And don't feel bad for liking them. You're supposed to like them. You're supposed to enjoy life. He wants you to. He gave you life so that you could enjoy it. But at the same time, you and I both know that we shouldn't follow Jesus just for those things. 
Because some of those things are shaky. And they might be here today, and we should thank, be thankful for them when they're here. But what if they're gone? Then what? You can feel happy today, but what if you feel depressed tomorrow? Well, that shouldn't and doesn't need to affect your commitment to God and your commitment to follow Jesus. So there's a bunch of folks, y'all, who claim to be followers of Jesus. And they're motivated by two things. There are those who follow him because they are compelled by a fierce and undying love. And there are those who follow him for the free food. Man, some people, I really think, like, <laughs> they follow God only because they're afraid if they don't, he's going to throw them into hell. There couldn't be a more impure motive than that, man. I used to follow God for that reason, and lo and behold, I found out he never wanted to throw me in the hell to begin with. And then people were like, well, why do you follow him then? Man, because I love him. I mean, once you experience him and you fall in love with him, you just want to. But if you're following him out of fear, then again, my word to you is just stay behind him and he'll purify your motive. Father God, we thank you today for your word and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for all the things that you reveal, but we thank you also for all the questions that you raise. And so we come before you today and say that sometimes, Father God, we must admit that our motives are not pure. That often we come here or we read our Bible or we pray or we do a good deed for someone else and we're motivated by fear, we're motivated by guilt, and we just want you to purify our motive. And we know that even if we do a good deed with a bad motive, at least it helps somebody else. But we want you to go deeper. For some of us, this is true. You have purified our actions. You have purified what we do. Now we pray that your spirit would go deeper and that you would purify why we do what we do. God, let us be a people not only marked by good deeds. Let us be like Jesus. That we would be marked not only by good deeds, but by pure motives. We pray that you would do this by way of your Holy Spirit. For our benefit, for your glory, and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.